All right, good morning. Welcome to Christ Church, a church of all lifting lives, elevating Christ to church for those who aren't here yet. I'm Pastor Andrew, and I'm glad you're here now. Joining us on site, maybe you're joining us online this morning. Good morning. And of course, also, good morning to all of you who are worshiping with us in West this morning. Good to have you as part of Christ Church today. We are deep into a sermon series, and a sermon series, as a reminder, is a series where we stretch a number of Sundays together with a thematic understanding, or we're studying a specific type of story. And so we're in a specific series that coincides with a historic practice in the Christian church called Lent. Lent is this incredible gift that the early Christians have handed down from generation to generation of Christians, where the the weeks leading up to Easter Sunday is a special time for the Christian person. It's a time of special uh, measure of dedication, uh, of attention to our spiritual lives and spiritual disciplines. Lent re-engages us, if we've gotten away or something like that, with the practice of understanding Jesus Christ and applying him into our daily lives and our daily activities. Lent is a time to recenter ourselves as a Christian people. And so we take that very seriously as a church every year. We take this as an opportunity to once again re-engage ourselves specifically with the person of Jesus Christ and re-engage with his story, his life, his death, and his resurrection. To help guide us along that in these last couple weeks and going forward up through Easter Sunday, we are specifically looking at a variety of dinner stories. Jesus is a cool guy, and he spends a lot of time with normal people like us, where he actually sits down and breaks bread and throws back a few and has really meaningful conversations. And we begin to have a better understanding of who Jesus is by looking at these vignettes or these stories where Jesus spends time during a meal with someone. That makes sense to us because meal times are meaningful. I mean, for just about everybody has certain rituals or certain meanings that come to light when you embrace a family meal or a meal with friends. When you think about a meal in your own life, there are certain practices that you probably do, certain people that you surround yourselves with. I mean, a meal is about more than inhaling a little bit of food. It's actually a profound space for growth and development, a space for experiencing life in its fullness. Meals have meaning in our lives, and it shouldn't surprise us then, therefore, that meals have meaning in the scriptures. And of all the various stories and vignettes that we could look at, we're going to spend one, we're going to look at today from the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, meals and the emphasis on meals is pronounced. There are no other Gospels that you can feel the importance of meals like you can in the Gospel of Luke. Just a reminder for you, too, what a Gospel is. A Gospel is a firsthand eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We have four of them, and they are all in the Bible, in the, in the latter part of the Bible, the New Testament. One of them is written by a gentleman named Luke, who happens to be a doctor. And we're going to be looking at and grounded this morning in the Gospel of Luke as our text today. But Luke is interesting in that he takes meals very, very seriously, and that's something particularly important when we look forward to Luke's other works. He wrote more than the Gospel of Luke. In fact, he also wrote another book of the Bible called the Book of Acts. Part one, the Gospel of Luke, is all about Jesus. Part two, the Book of Acts, is all about Jesus' followers in the beginning of the church. It has to do with how the church got started and began to embody and flesh out the Christian movement and what it meant to follow Jesus, same author. And interestingly, in both the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, you will find that meals 
are tremendously important. And the reason why for Luke specifically is because meals capture for him a sense of what the kingdom of God is. That the kingdom of God, if you were to understand and seek to better know and embrace and learn about what the kingdom really looks like, Luke says, look, the best place that you can get a glimpse of the kingdom of God is by looking at a meal, looking at what a meal represents and the rituals and the experiences that can happen in and around a meal. And so the meal has, is a way in which we can, as a Christian people today, better understand what the kingdom of God is like and how the kingdom of God has relevance to our own lives. This is exactly why he wrote the book of Acts and why in the book of Acts you find Christian people gathered around meals. It's because they were trying to embody and live out the kingdom of God. That's what the book of Acts is about. So we find that the kingdom was important both in the early church, the kingdom of God getting established among the early Christians, and then we will also find and see, yes, this applies to us now as well. Sometimes some Christians say the Bible uh, isn't, isn't as applicable today. You just need to read your Bibles. Trust me, you're going to see plenty of applicability today. The example of the early church is applying that kingdom, and we're going to look at some stories. So we're going to start, though, by looking at Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at a series of three, a little vignettes that all have to do with a meal. All starts with Jesus having dinner. I'm going to invite you to just listen this morning. The sermon is going to feel a little bit different because we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to cover 24 different verses. So we're going to be like the early church. You're going to have one person read and you all just get to listen. If you do want to follow along, you do that through your apps or whatever you got on hand. We're going to be Luke chapter 14. But here you go, a story about Jesus having some dinner. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. Sometimes some translations will say had dropsy. It's a condition. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? When they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. And then he turned to them and he said, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Again, they could not answer. We'll pause there. Now, this story at the outset looks pretty straightforward. Jesus is having a meal, and he's at the house of a Pharisee. A Pharisee, as a reminder, is one of those religious elite, someone who is guarding the traditions of the Jewish people, someone who's really dialed in on what it looks like and means to follow the Jewish laws and regulations to be culturally and ethnically Jewish and religiously Jewish, ascribing to a certain lifestyle. This Pharisee, and as you saw in the text, is watching him closely to see what Jesus will do when all of a sudden a sick man shows up. And we also learn from the text that it's a Sabbath. Sabbath is a big deal in the Jewish theology and Jewish way of life. In fact, it's one of the top ten. You've heard of the Ten Commandments maybe before. Sabbath is like on the big end of the Jewish uh, importance level, okay? And a Sabbath is more than simply a day off of work. So often in our vernacular, you hear people say, oh, I need a Sabbath or I need a rest day or something like that. In Jewish custom and theology, it was actually far more profound than just simply a day off. 
Sabbath was a time to step back from work, yes, but to step back from the responsibilities and the demands and the everyday, the adulting that goes with simply living life, to refocus and center yourself on what it meant to be Jewish, to rediscover and reconnect with your Jewish faith and your faith practice. The Sabbath was a time to, to set aside all the busyness and all the work and all the demands and really focus on God, which is why it's in the top 10, the 10 commandments. It's a big deal. And you would look at that and say like, okay, so then what's the big deal about healing on the Sabbath? Well, it's because healing on the Sabbath was regarded as work and therefore would have been in conflict with the Sabbath. Oh, well, now it's a little bit more complex. But how is healing work? Well, if you're a doctor, you would go to somebody's house and you would do the practice that you do as a doctor and you would work towards healing in that person's life and then you would be working, right? The simple reality here is that you have two good things that are happening, healing and the work of healing, but it is at conflict with the desire and the expectation to step away from work and focus on God. Maybe another way to say it is you have two conflicting Jewish expectations or Jewish laws that are in conflict. On one side, you're supposed to obey the Sabbath. On the other side, part of what it means to be Jewish is to help your neighbor and heal people, encourage people. I mean, if your cow falls into a pit, you don't just let it die there. You get down in the pit, you pull the cow out, let alone a human person. And this was also part of the expectation of what the Jewish law had. And so you have two Jewish laws that are in tension with one another. Have you ever had a situation before where you've got two decisions? You've got to make a decision. You have like two options, but they're in conflict with one another. Either two good options or two bad options. We even have, this is so common that we have vernacular phrases, choose the better option or the lesser of two evils. You know, regardless, you've got to make a choice and you have to make a decision, but what do you do when they're in tension? You've got to lean one way. And the Pharisees are very interested in finding out which way is Jesus going to lean. Is he going to lean towards the Sabbath or is he going to lean towards helping people? This is far more complex than at first read. Interestingly enough, Jesus does make a definitive action-related statement. He helps us understand what the kingdom of God is like based on his action. He stretches out his hand and he engages the person and he heals him. This upsets the religious law and religious leaders. They were trying to catch him in a catch-22 and Jesus moves forward and defers to helping someone. This is profound, a profound statement about the kingdom of God. That in the kingdom of God, people matter most. The early church will actually wrestle with this same concept and the same idea. You see in the early church, if you go to the book of Acts, like I said before, the author of Luke is very interested in what happens in the life of the church and describes it in the book of Acts. This problem of having two things that are good in conflict with one another comes up. It comes up in the form of dietary laws. Again, this may sound boring to you, but trust me, it has application. In the early church, the way that the kingdom of God was applied had to do with how and what you eat. You see, what happened is you might have a friend down the street named Frank. Frank throws a pig roast. 
And, well, if you're Jewish, um, you would have some hesitation around showing up to a pig roast because pigs are considered unclean. And even if you're Christian, you would have hesitation of showing up to the pig roast because that pig had been sacrificed to an idol. You see, there was a whole industry, there was a whole marketplace built around the idea that you would go to the pagan temple and you would bring your pig or your chicken or your goat and the priests would kill it and then you would get to keep the meat and they would burn as offerings the the insides, the other pieces, some of the intestines and things like that. But you got to go home then with the meat, the baby back ribs were yours to keep and you would throw a party. So now Frank is throwing a party with baby back ribs and he's invited you as a Christian What do you do? Because a Christian, as a Christian, you are encouraged to go and witness and love and be a part of Frank's life. But to show up and be a part of Frank's life, does that mean that you're also then therefore encouraging his pagan faith by eating the baby back ribs? You see how the tension plays out. It's complex. What do you do? Maybe you've been in a circumstance similar. At work in your family, in a recreation where you feel caught between two difficult choices and you feel pulled by that tension. Jesus and the kingdom of God would actually have something to say here on which way we should lean when we're caught in such circumstances and situations. The Apostle Paul actually advocates for exactly this and helps bring resolution to the early church. The Apostle Paul is one of the pastors in the early church, and he has to write a letter to the church in Corinth saying, look, when it comes to all this dietary stuff, do what's best for your neighbor. That we do our best when we do what is best for our neighbor. Because in the kingdom of God, people matter most. So that means in my life, in your life, if we are to live into what it means to be part of the kingdom of God, we have to always remind ourselves and ground ourselves in the principle that when it comes to difficult decision-making, people are what matter most. This is part of what it means to participate and be in the kingdom of God. But Jesus is not done yet. Once he heals this guy and displays a teaching with his deeds, he now gives us a more explicit teaching with some additional words. Jesus heals and then rolls right into a teaching on humility. Let me read to you again. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to dinner were trying to sit in seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited. The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed. and You'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table, and then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. And then you will be honored in front of all of your other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus turned to his host and said, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Pause there. After displaying 
the kingdom of God through a t- physical touch and healing. He now gives us a teaching on the disposition of the kingdom of God, what the heart is like as people live into the kingdom of God. And it has a great deal to do with humility. It's humility and generosity juxtaposed with pride and power, the jostling for seats of power and influence. If you've ever been in any sort of large organization or, goodness gracious, this happens in the PTO. You know what I'm saying? People who try to throw their weight around and be in the place of honor, I mean, that really actually happens in our everyday life, guys, doesn't it? Where people make assumptions and even to the point of saying, Jesus goes to the point of looking at the host and saying, look, you're only inviting people to this experience because you hope to have a string tied to them, that you want to be able to have a favor in the future. And that's not being generous. That's not what the kingdom is about. You're inviting people to make this into a networking event. That's what you're doing. You're hoping that they will invite you someday and that you'll be able to get something in return for the invitation. And that doesn't have the same heart that the kingdom of God is trying to display and what the kingdom of God is ultimately about. When, when you are looking at people as the host and you're, you're, you're trying to invite them only because you know you can get something back, you don't actually value the person. You value what you can get from them. And when you're jostling for for position and authority and power, you're not valuing people. You're valuing, well, yourself over and against other people. And that's not what the kingdom of God is about. That's what Jesus teaches us here is to say, no, wait a minute. In the kingdom of God, Christian people value one another. In fact, we value one another more than ourselves. We defer When we look at our brother, when we look at our sister, we see them not as someone that we can get something from, but we see them as an incredible gift with a unique story that we can appreciate. And we should laud them and, and help them and assist them, and we should encourage them in their life. And in doing so, we adopt a position of humility, a disposition in a heart situation. Jesus is speaking to the principle of how you look at people and what you value in people. Because people matter most, be careful in the ways in which you value people. Do you only value the people who will get you ahead in life? Or are you going to value the people who demand more patience from you? People who, well, you might learn to slow down with people who tax you or trouble you or find it difficult. Because in the kingdom of God, those people matter too. They are valuable. This becomes a problem again in the early church. In the early church, this actually took place where people began to sit with smaller groups in the church and differentiate one another based not on mutual humility or what God values in another person, but based on the world and what the world can get from them. The businessmen started sitting with the businessmen because the winemaker wanted to open a wine shop, and so he would sit as a Christian with a guy who owns a vineyard, right? And they would hang out, and they would ignore the poor people. Or the Jewish people who have a Jewish background would actually start sitting with with, with other Jews and they would stop sitting and stop associating with the non-Jews. And all of a sudden, within the church, within the kingdom of God, you would start to see lines getting drawn and differentials being made based not on what God values, but on what the world values. And it takes, once again, the apostle Paul, it takes this guy Paul to step forward and say, wait a minute, that's not the kingdom. 
That, that's not what God wants here. That's not what the kingdom of God is actually about. The kingdom of God isn't about differentiating based on what the world values, but based on what God values. He goes so far as he has to actually call out a guy named St. Peter. You ever heard of St. Peter before? He's kind of a big deal in the Christian church. St. Peter even slips into this habit of only associating with other Jews. And Paul actually has to publicly call him out and say, this is not what the kingdom's about. The kingdom is about appreciating and valuing people the way that God does. And so that needs to be made evident and be made real and lived out within the context of the church. In the church, where the kingdom of God is fleshed out and embodied, we value people based on what God values in people. And that leads us to that disposition of humility. So Jesus so far has been painting for us and clarifying for us what the kingdom of God is about, but he's still got more to say. So once he's done a, te- once he's done a healing, once he's done a teaching, he's got one more thing for us in the series of three, and it's a parable. A parable is a word story meant to convey an understanding. It's a word picture. Here's the parable of the great banquet. Listen to this. Hearing this, a man sitting at table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. There's the author, Luke, uh, uh, giving us a touch point that this has all got to do with the kingdom of God. That's why that's there. Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I just bought a field and must inspect it. Uh, Please forgive me. Another said, I just bought uh, five pairs of oxen, and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. That one I feel like is kind of legit. (laughs) Maybe it's just me, but anyways. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious, and he said, Go quickly into the streets, the alleys, the town, and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. That's that same uh, list that we actually just saw a moment ago in the teaching as well, that, that, who, about who's invited and who's participating in the kingdom of God. There is still room for more, he said to his master. And the master responds again, Go into the country lanes behind the hedges. Urge anyone you find to come so the house will be full. Kind of like, go get the riffraff, man. We'll take them all, everybody. Come on. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of the banquet. Okay, what is the parable of the banquet about? Well, it's rather significant in scholarly work. In the Christian tradition, this is one of the most profound and substantial parables that Jesus gives us in our Christian tradition. Why? This is believed to be a picture and an understanding connected with heaven itself. That the kingdom of God overlaps with our understanding of heaven. This is the heavenly banquet. And so when it comes to conversations around heaven, everybody wants to know who's getting an invite, who's going to be there, who's on the inside, who's going to attend, and who's not. This becomes a penetrating question in the early church, and it shouldn't surprise us that we still wrestle with these questions to this day, do we not? But in the early church, this becomes a big issue regarding Jews and non-Jews, referred to as Gentiles. I mean, the Jews are in, right? So what about the non-Jews? Do they get to be invited to the banquet? Do they get to participate in the kingdom of God? Do they get to get into heaven? 
And this became one of the biggest, if not the biggest issue within the early church of who can be part of the heavenly banquet. And once again, the church had to wrestle and apply their kingdom perspective and their kingdom principles. And they could look back to the heavenly banquet and to this parable, to this teaching. And, and as they did so, as they opened this up and as they began to read and reconsider and remember what Jesus taught here, they realized that yes, Jews are part of the kingdom and Gentiles are part of the kingdom as well. In fact, everyone is invited to participate and live into the kingdom of God. Even the riffraff, the people who are broken and messy and don't have it all together, living at the fringes of society, the outcasts, yes, everybody, even those behind the hedges, are welcome in the kingdom of God. And that means for you too. You are invited, purposed to participate in God's kingdom. The kingdom of God, and the reason why it's so very important that we spend time understanding what it's about, is because it's meant for you. You are meant to be there, to have a seat at God's table. He is saving a seat for you, that you also might live into the fullness of the kingdom of God. And he secured that with his own son, Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. You are intended to be part of the kingdom of God. Of God. You say, no, not me. Uh-uh, not me. I got this issue. I got that issue. I got, I don't know. I mean, you heard that list there about the whole the blind, the lame, and I don't qualify. I'm not on the guest list. Quit making excuses, will you? I'm not blind. Are you telling me you don't have any blind spots? I don't know about you, but my kids think I'm really lame. <laughs> Bad joke, dad joke. You're telling me you've never been sick of this world and the pain and the brokenness that comes with it? Make no mistake. You are invited, intended, Welcome at God's table into the very kingdom of God. It is being made real in God's people, through God's people, in you and through you, for you. That's why it's important that we understand what the kingdom is. So as you go forth into the rest of your week, remember that you are part of the kingdom. 
live life and make decisions based on people because people matter most. Live in such a way and embrace the intentionality of valuing people based on what God values. And go so far as to invite others to participate in the kingdom. For the kingdom was intended for everyone. There is no greater time to remember the importance of invitation as we anticipate Easter Sunday coming. So brother, sister, go be part of the kingdom. You are here to be part of the kingdom. Amen, good? Uh, please pray with me to close. Gracious Lord, we th give you thanks and praise that your kingdom is indeed made real in and through us. Just as it was in the early church, it is being made real here and now, in and through us, the church of today. We ask that we would indeed embrace what it means to put people first, that we would indeed embrace and see people with your eyes valuing what you value. We pray that we would extend your kingdom, inviting more and more people to participate in the goodness of your rule, your reign, and your authority. Thank you that this morning we could hear that we are welcome, we are invited, we are intended to be at your table. It is with great humility that we recognize, we repent of the past, our brokenness, sorry for the times we make excuses, God, and yet in your grace you continue to beckon us to your table. You continue to meet us there in your kingdom. And so we ask and pray this morning, make your kingdom made known here. Strengthen us and encourage us. Send us out to extend your kingdom more widely in this world that more might come to know you, your love, your grace, and your forgiveness. Thank you that you would give each one of us a seat at your table. Jesus, we humbly ask and we pray this all in your holy and in your precious name. Amen.